At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Bright says thank you for listening. The power of film is central to today's show. The WABE TV series Atlanta on Film highlights two local festivals, Out on Film and the Morehouse College Human Rights Film Festival. Later this hour, we'll hear from Jim Farmer, the executive director of Out on Film, and writer-director Patrick Shetta about his short, Reverend Falls, which airs Monday on WABE-TV. First, the life, writings, and mind of Zora Neale Hurston, Celebrated author of Their Eyes Were Watching God is the subject of a new documentary premiering January 17th as part of the PBS series American Experience. Zora Neale Hurston, Claiming a Space, explores the author's trailblazing fiction as well as her important contributions to the field of cultural anthropology, which were as extraordinary in her time as they remain today. Joining me now via Zoom is the documentary's writer, director, and producer, Tracy Heather Strain. Welcome back to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. It's so wonderful to be back to speak with you. Well, we last spoke when you were in Atlanta promoting your documentary on Lorraine Hansberry, Sighted Eyes, Feeling Heart. That film is superb, and you won a Peabody, along with an NAACP Image Award, among other accolades. This film is also outstanding. And I was wondering how you decided to create this documentary about Zora Neale Hurston. I was delighted when I got a call one day from Cameo George, who is the executive producer of American Experience, asking me if I wanted to make a documentary about Zora Neale Hurston that focused on her anthropology. And how could I have said no, of course, because Zora Neale Hurston is one of those individuals that I really wished I had known at that time more about. I 
she was on my list to learn more about Zora Neale Hurston. I had spent so much time in my life, like work thinking about Lorraine Hansberry that there was no, not room for learning about other people for a long time. And so this project gave me the opportunity to finally read Their Eyes Were Watching God. I'm of that generation that did not grow up with reading it in high school. I'm much older than that. And, uh, and so my students, have read it, but I had not read it. And I was kind of embarrassed by that. I had friends who knew Zora Neale Hurston inside and out, or at least they think they do. And so this was a great opportunity for me. I was really grateful. And I felt really honored that Cameo George picked me to be the person to bring this story to the screen for American experience. Well, deservedly so. I think I remember you're telling me you were immersed in Lorraine Hansberry's life for nearly 20 years. Is that correct, before the documentary came out? Yeah, yeah, for a long time. And and it, the film itself took 14 to finally, you know, get made. And this is a different project, a different process. We've actually made this two-hour film in 11 months which isn't probably my favorite schedule, but (laughs) (laughs) we did it. And uh, I'm delighted to hear from you that you enjoyed it. Oh, yes. And and there's so much to unpack. You mentioned their eyes were watching God's or Neil Hurston is probably best remembered or most widely remembered for her novel. To get a better picture of this great thinker beyond her most famous story. What do we need to know about her life? One of the things that's really important to know about Zora Neale Hurston is that she was raised in Eatonville, Florida, which was considered one of the first all black incorporated towns in the United States. And so until she was a 13, she was in an exciting environment that I wouldn't say was free of racism, but she saw a range of people managing, Black people managing their own lives and affairs primarily. And as a child, she was particularly drawn to the general store porch. Joe Clark's store was the general store and people would come to the store and sit on the porch and tell stories and share folk stories. And she would understand things about their lives. She would watch them and she had to go to the store. She tried to stay there as much as possible because for some reason, she was innately drawn to these stories, these lives and the goings on of these adults. And I think It's an important part of Zora Neale Hurston. It's an integral part of Zora Neale Hurston's story because the porch and Eatonville resurfaced throughout her life in her ethnographic work and in her literature. Indeed, she was considered the foremost authority on Black folklore during her lifetime. And yet, that worked against her being of the community, but also as a serious academic anthropologist, being told that she had to be detached and objective. This conundrum went on throughout her life, and yet 
how how was she able to be of the community and yet also an outsider who could write lovingly about the community? Zora Neale Hurston faced something that today's Black anthropologists and probably other non-white people face is that when they want to study people like themselves, it is often perceived as you know, that they can't have objectivity, that uh, the, the term is called you're being a native anthropologist, because this is a discipline that was started at a time when people were looking at the other. You know, people, white Westerners were traveling around the world looking at other people studying their ways and trying to categorize them into hierarchies. Obviously with white Western civil civilization being perceived as at the top of the hierarchy. And you have Zora Neale Hurston at this time in, in the 20s feeling that African-American culture, Black culture, I should say, because she also traveled beyond the United States for, in her work, was significant, important, and that uh, to get inside, she realized that some of the techniques she learned from Barnard and studying with Franz Boas and others who were at Columbia University were not the appropriate techniques to get people that she knew had lots of stories and folklore to share to give it up. She called this resistance that she faced and others faced feather bed resistance because African Americans were basically primed to give people what they wanted to hear. They were polite, but they weren't going to give up the good stuff, so to speak. And so Zora Neale Hurston faced this herself when she took her first trip south to do collect folklore. The next time she went, she had a different approach, which was to become more of an insider, to gain trust. She shared as well as took. She made friends with people, but she still, she was taking careful notes and documenting things and taking photographs. The second trip she went down, she also had a movie camera. So this is what she was, how she was able to both get inside and then stand back as an, an observer. And uh, I think we, you can see this, an example of her getting inside in, in the beginning and the end of the film where there is footage of Zora Neale Hurston playing the drums at the Commandment Keeper Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. She had a really sad youth. Although up until she was 13, she had marvelous support and encouragement from her mother who, who encouraged her to jump at the sun, to follow her passion. I love that. What happened when her mother died? When Zora Neale Hurston's mother passed away after an illness when Zora was 13, she, she describes it as being primarily on her own. She described the following years as haunted. And she, from that point on, basically made her way through the world herself. Sometimes she stayed with relatives and other people, but 
we don't know a lot about her life for a long time because she doesn't tell us what transpired in her um, autobiography, Dust Tracks on the Road. But it sounds like it must have been very difficult. One thing we do know, which unfortunately we didn't have or we were not able to keep in the documentary, was that she she spent time as a lady's maid for a Gilbert and Sullivan traveling theater troupe. Oh. <laughs> and and she ended up in Baltimore as a result of that. And that's where she picks up and gets in decides that she needs to get back to getting an education. And why couldn't you use that? You know, it, the thing about, you know, making a film like this is that you have to pick what stories you can visualize and what stories that was I think one of the chief ish problems with the story about the Gilbert and Sullivan show and there wasn't a lot of documentation beyond what she said in Dust Tracks and so it, it, it you know was complex but yeah I wanted to put it in because later she is involved in drama and so this story could have connected with that but it just it was hard to it was hard to work in. And we were eager to get to the anthropology part, because that's in many ways the inciting incident of the story when Zora Neale Hurston discovers anthropology. Yes. And, you know, here is this fiercely intelligent young woman. Young woman. She was a girl at 13, and she already was so fascinated by human behavior and also very proud of the storytelling tradition, the musicality, everything in the community that surrounded her. After her mother dies, her father sends her to boarding school in Baltimore with barely a year's worth of tuition. Tracy, why, why was he so cruel? After Zorino Hurston's mother died, her father sent her to Jacksonville, Florida to attend boarding school. She had a brother and sister that were already there. This is a family that quite highly valued education. And so it's unclear why he only supported her for one year, but he had remarried shortly after the mother died and the children were quite upset about it. They were quite angry about it. And so it's unclear. <laughs> Why the decision was made to not support Zora Neale Hurston's education, but she, to stay there, to finish out that year, she had to scrub floors. And this situation is repeated again and again in her life, where to get an education, Zora Neale Hurston has to work part-time to be able to continue her learning. And she does it later when she goes to Baltimore. She realizes if she puts her age back, she could go to school at night to begin her high school education. And she does that, but she's working during the day. And then she gets into Morgan Academy in Baltimore. And she works as a maid on you know, a trustee's home. And then her classmates and, and professors or teachers think that, oh, she has, she's Howard material. And she she tries to get into Howard, but they tell her, you need to go to Howard Academy first, which is a preparatory school. She's working to get through that. And then while she, after she gets into Howard in 1919, she's only going part-time because she has to keep working. And so she is passionate about getting an education and is, you know, not sitting back at all. 
in her lifetime waiting for a handout. No, and and she just feels so alive in the academy in oh well how did she described Howard in the film as I felt the ladder under my feet. She made this, I mean, this marvelous metaphor where she is lifted, elevated by them. Yeah, Zora says the ladders on their feet. And the, the issue is that she supported, and I didn't want to imply before that it was appropriate for Zora Hurston to be so young and have had to work, strive so hard for an education. But you do realize that once she gets to Howard, that she feels supported like you know for the first time in a long time in her life people recognize her talents just like as her mother had and she's encouraged I mean this is the woman who co-founded Howard's newspaper that's now a daily newspaper you know and uh, among other things that she did on campus but Harlem Renaissance or I should say the new Negro movement that seemed to be based in Harlem, New York, was calling her. She was encouraged by Charles S. Johnson to go to New York to be a part of the scene there. And that's what she did in 1925. And very shortly after her arrival, she's invited to the Opportunity Awards Center. Opportunity Magazine was a magazine of the Urban League. And she ended up winning four prizes and made such a splash that that night, and she made a splash because of her literary talent, but people report that she had a personality that was so endearing that people really were drawn to her. And that night, she was able to gain entry into Barnard College by speaking to one of the founders of the college. And so suddenly she's a, she's transferred to Barnard College. And this incredible wealth of intellectual life surrounding her, to which she is contributing, she ends up a student of Franz Boas, the father of modern American anthropology. This was a very complex relationship. On the one hand, he recognized her brilliance, although I, I was so saddened at the point in the film when we learn he really did not endorse her credibility because she didn't finish her PhD or didn't have a PhD. And, and again, this just seems so emblematic of her life as an intellectual, and yet intellectuals dismissing her as too emotive or undisciplined. What, what did you take away from all of this, Tracy? First of all, we were, <laughs> the team and I were quite surprised and, and disappointed, to say the least, to read Franz Boas's words when he was asked, when she asked him to be a recommender for her to receive a Guggenheim so that she could continue her research. She had written to them to ask for support. He had facilitated her first research trip by finding funders 
and for some reason they he was not so the department at Columbia University was not finding more support for her to continue the work so she's trying to do it on her own so she's she applies to a Guggen, the Guggenheim Foundation and like all most recommendations it's secret but we get to see what he and others wrote and he basically suggested that you know to paraphrase uh, one of the uh, on-screen uh, commenters that she was journalistic and she wasn't Guggenheim material in short. Basically, she felt she was betrayed in, in some ways by people in her office. And it's unclear if it was definitely because she did not have a PhD that they didn't do it or there was something else going. It's hard to think that even though Boaz was, a, was known as an anti-racist, that there wasn't still some kind of bias. Yeah, it's it's unclear, but it was so disappointing to to read that because, you know, Zora was probably so unaware of this at the time. When she applies the second time for the Guggenheim, it's so interesting that she does not ask Franz Boas or Elizabeth Benedict to write recommendations. The only anthropologist she asked the second time is Melville Herskovitz, who had been a researcher at Columbia when she was there and a professor, a young professor at the time. And she ends up getting a Guggenheim um, at the second time. Yes. Which was so exciting. And and then and then by that time she also had decided that she was so frustrated with the academy and and, and some aspects of institutionalized anthropology that when she applies the second time she doesn't put anthropology down as her field of discipline she puts down literary science and I see that as her own recognition that what I I'm here to do is meld ethnographic research with literature and and then we get their eyes were watching God which is a perfect example of the blend yes if you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights, speaking with filmmaker Tracy Heather Strain. We've been discussing her documentaries, Oren Yule Hurston, Claiming a Space. If we could take a step back for a moment, I have to tell you, Charlotte Osgood Mason made me squirm. I mean, just just cringeworthy attitude on the part of this wealthy socialite who was a patron of the Harlem Renaissance. Would you talk about the woman whom Zorin described as the Park <laughs> Avenue dragon? Yes, she said that later. <laughs> But <laughs> Langston Hughes and Elaine Locke had been supported by Charlotte Osgood Mason, who was a white, wealthy woman who supported Harlem, several Harlem artists. And Langston Hughes had said, I'll put a good word in for you. And he did, and Elaine Locke did as well. And Charlotte Osgood Mason became a supporter of Zora Neale Hurston. But she wasn't just a supporter. She was her employer. The contract that Zora Neale Hurston signed with Charlotte Osgood Mason said that 
she was an employee who was to collect basically all sorts of black things. Af you know, African-American art, literature, hoodoo, conjure, you know, the list is vast, in my opinion. And Charlotte Osgood Mason owned the material that Hurston collected. Now, Charlotte Osgood Mason facilitated Zora Neale Hurston's second trip, which allowed her to film Kujo Lewis, who was considered one of the last living formerly enslaved people from the what we think of as the last slave ship to uh, come to the United States. It was illegally at uh, the Clotilde. And so Zora Neale Hurston filmed him. That footage is in the documentary. She interviewed him over a period of time to tell his, collect his story about from the time, his time in, Af in Africa, his capture, and then his, you know, getting to America and beyond. And um, that's really an important story. She also used this movie camera that Mason um, paid for to capture other views of Black rural life. So we have images of children and people, just Black people doing everyday things. And it's not to say that Dorino Hurston was the only person that, that was Black that was capturing Black life at the time, but much of early uh, motion picture imagery of Black people is unavailable, was destroyed, or is lost. So ultimately, Charlotte Osgood Mason did some good, but she put Zora Neale Hurston in a very difficult position, which is she had to keep Charlotte Osgood Mason happy to be able to do what she wanted to do. And Charlotte Osgood Mason was anti-academia, and that interfered with Zora Neale Hurston's relationship with Franz Boas. And so sometimes I wonder if, you know, Charlotte Osgood Mason, you know, just interfered with Zora's relationship with Franz Boas to the extent that it would have, you know, it had negative ramifications in the, in, you know, down the line. But it was, it was very stressful. And, and their relationship uh, lasted for about five, five years. And once it was over, you know, Zora Neale Hurston referred to Charlotte Osgood Mason as the Park Avenue dragon when she was kind of free of her. But she really controlled. I mean, just think about spending all your time skirting danger down south alone, <laughs> a black woman in a car traveling the south to collect folklore, and you don't own it someone else owns it, someone who believed that the reason to collect this stuff was because she supported primitivism. It okay, was a that's, Yeah, that's the creepiest part of all, I think. Yeah, so primitivism was this movement of people who felt, who were like white Western people who thought that somehow that collecting things of primitive, so-called primitive cultures and being around so-called primitive people would somehow offset whatever ennui and whatever feelings were going on in Western, white Western society related to industrialization. In some ways, it feels a little familiar to me. I feel this is a little bit what goes on today as people start embracing all of these different kinds of practices from other cultures, thinking that they're, these people are more spiritual. So I, I don't think we're, we're that far away from this kind of thinking as we'd like to think, you know? Ooh, 
Well, clearly Mason's money was put to important use, but boy, were those strings tight. Yes, yes. And she'd control, you know, she controlled Langston Hughes and she was controlling Locke and it was hard for them to, to do their work, but people need money, you know, artists to the, you know, need money to live, to create. And, and when you think about Zora Neale Hurston trying to do anthropology, you have to travel to places, you have to live while you're there, you have to eat, you know, you have to do all sorts of things. And Mason made Zora Neale Hurston account for every penny. She even had to like ask at one point for money to get a pair of shoes because it seems as if Mason would only let her have one pair of shoes at a time. Now, Mason also insisted that those artists and thinkers she patronized would call her godmother. Yes, Mason insisted that the artists that she supported call her godmother. And it is so interesting to think about that. It, it's creepy. It's, <laughs> it's, de- it's creepy and a little depressing. And when you read some of the letters that Hurston wrote to her, you can see her working to, to make Mason be happy. At times, if Zora hadn't written enough, Mason would be upset with her. But she also sometimes did things that I mean, she knew that Mason wouldn't approve, and periodically she shared this information with Langston Hughes with the caveat, please don't tell Godmother. So I, 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 think it, I think it was difficult for all of them. Before Mason ended her relationship with Hurston, she actually had ended her support of Langston Hughes before that. And it was, it was you know, it's, it's hard for anybody to lose a source of income. But on the other hand, on many levels, it must have it was it must have been so stressful to a stressful way to get money. Mm. Talk about this burning desire. I had to be a fly on the wall. Would you talk about the relationship, the friendship between Langston Hughes and or Neil Hurston? Yeah, we know of some of the relationship between Langston Hughes and Zorino Hurston because of some of the letters that she wrote him that were preserved. We don't has, have as much information about what he wrote her because a lot of Hurston's papers are not available. They either were lost or stolen or burned uh, or just thrown, you know, thrown away. But we know some also because of interviews people did with Hurston, I mean, people that knew Langston Hughes and and Zornel Hurston, but they were really close. They had met at the Opportunity Awards and then got to know each other when they ran into each other in 1927 in Mobile, Alabama, and they rode together uh, as Hurston was finishing up her first research trip, and they went on all these different adventures and there's we luckily have a couple of photos from that time period but they were they both were interested in folk and black people of the south they were two figures that weren't trying to run away from southern black culture and uh, they became each other's confidants and they were supposed to collaborate on a work at charlotte osgood mason's behest but they ended up working on something else and it got complicated. It's, it's, it's a super complicated story that we 
can't we couldn't even get into in the film but they have a falling out and in some ways mason is in the middle of it as we say in the film neither of them probably recovered from this the the severing of their friendship and when langston hughes wrote his autobiography he was quite unflattering towards Neil Hurston. It was kind of disappointing. It's disappointing to read his autobiography in terms of what he says about her. She really suffered at the hands of some of the great writers, male writers of her time. Yeah, she did. Richard Wright, who actually at the time uh, had not come out with his, his first book, wrote a critique of Their Eyes Were Watching God that said that the book had no thought, <laughs> among other things. You know, and why, you know, and if you, for those of us who have read and listened to Their Eyes Were Watching God, <laughs> that's that. there's quite a lot of thought. There's a, quite a lot of analysis, gender, class colorism analysis it it appears to many of us that the reason one of the main reasons that the book was dismissed by these male writers is that it centered the story of a black woman and it wasn't hit you on the head political it was it's a very political book but at the time when their eyes were watching god was published things were changing and Black literature was becoming more overtly political. And the other thread that was happening in society is that the Negro was becoming, to use a phrase coined by Langston Hughes, was no longer in vogue. You know, I mean, he said it, the Negro was in vogue, you know, during a certain period of time. But, you know, towards the, the end of the Great Depression, or as we were moving towards, that we would be heading towards war, people were less interested in stories of the African-American experience in the way that they had been interested before. And so Zora Neale Hurston suffered in terms of the kind of attention that she had been used to with her earlier books, which is ironic because Their Eyes Were Watching God is probably much more well-known and famous. One of the other main critiques of Their Eyes Were Watching God in the eyes of people like Richard Wright and Elaine Locke is that because she used what we call now African-American vernacular English or dialect, as they would say at the time, that she was pandering to white folks. She was giving, she was giving into the minstrel technique. And, but Zora Neale Hurston was committed to authenticity. She was someone who was trained in, in anthropology. She was interested in presenting the stories and the words and the songs and other material, the way that she remembered and documented it. And I'm not sure that she felt pulled by that. I think Zora Neale Hurston felt committed to this authenticity, so much so, as you will remember from the film, that when she wanted to get Barracoon published in 1931, which is the story of Kujo Lewis, the person who was considered the, at that time, it turns out he wasn't, the last enslaved African from the Clotilda she would not change any dialect in that work even though the publishers said we'll publish it if you change it she was committed to the authenticity 
Barracoon was never published in Zora Neale Hurston's lifetime. It was published in 2018. Mind blowing, truly. <laughs> when you mentioned Elaine Locke, I just laughed <laughs> so hard when she read his review in the film. You, you say that her response to his review was she would send her toenails to debate him. <laughs> I thought, oh, that's just priceless. Yes, I thought it was pri- I, th- I thought that was funny in many ways that, you know, Zora Neale Hurston, to conclude that Zora Neale Hurston said that she would uh, send her toenails to debate him, because I think it also represented her southernness and her own use of you know terms and phrases from the south and uh, i just i just love that (laughs) i was thinking of you tracy when i got to the part in the documentary where zora neale hurston believes that perhaps the power of all she believes and what she wants her legacy to be lies within drama and the theater. I wondered about you as someone who was immersed in Lorraine Hansberry's life for so long, how these two women come together. It's interesting to think about how important drama was in the lives of people before television you know took kind of took over and the screens I'll say took over and I think that both women Lorraine Hansberry and Zorno Hurston recognized that power and wanted to harness it to to make social change Lorraine Hansberry felt like a raise in the sun was a protest play in a certain way it was going to help make change in our society that people would see as I'm paraphrasing her that black people were just as mixed up and determined as any other people that's totally a paraphrase (laughs) but anyway um, and then you have Zora Neale Hurston who has gone out in the world and collected all this folklore and met all these people and has grown up in this all-black town and felt the power of the language and the stories of these lives and wanted to share it with audiences. And unlike some of her contemporaries who were banking on just, you know, literature, reading, people reading, she thought people needed to experience it like she had. And unfortunately for her, it did not work out the way she had hoped. It was the production that she put on The Great Day drew on performance and music that she collected but it went on on Broadway she used a lot of her own money she used she borrowed money from Mason and no one picked it up and it was devastating to her and she also was I think stressed and sick and she ended up going back to Florida fortunately for Lorraine Hansberry things worked out the opposite (laughs) Tracy Heather Strain director of the new documentary, Zora Neale Hurston, Claiming a Space, part of the PBS series American Experience. The film airs on WABE-TV, Tuesday, January 17th at 9 p.m., and again on Sunday, January 22nd at 6 p.m. 
More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll listen to my conversation with the director of Reverend Falls, one of the shorts featured in the new WABE-TV series, Atlanta on Film. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. Great to have you along. This past Sunday, WABE held an event in front of a live audience at the Plaza Theater to celebrate the launch of our new TV series, Atlanta on Film. The WABE Studios' original highlights two of Atlanta's prominent film festivals, Out on Film and the Morehouse College Human Rights Film Festival. During the live event at the Plaza, I had the opportunity to speak with both festivals' executive directors, as well as a filmmaker included in each of the festivals. My interview about the Morehouse College Human Rights Film Festival will be heard next month on City Lights. Today, we'll hear my conversation with Jim Farmer, executive director of the Out on Film Festival, and filmmaker Patrick Shetta. Shetta's short, Reverend Falls, will be included in the next episode of Atlanta on Film, which airs on WABE-TV Monday, January 16th. Reverend Falls is a short film about a celebrity minister who is struggling with his orientation. The Reverend seeks advice from a gay couple to sort through his feelings and realize his truth. This film by Patrick Shetta will be a part of this year's Out on Film Festival and airs on WABE's Atlanta on Film series. Patrick joins me now, along with Jim Farmer. Welcome to City Lights. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thanks for having me. Jim, how do you think audiences and particularly Atlanta viewers, in light of what you were discussing a moment ago. How do you think audiences will relate 
to Reverend Falls. I think audiences will really like this film, be challenged by it, and, and want to talk about it. Uh, because I remember vividly the first time I saw it in 2021. And I, I, don't, I don't specifically watch film. I, I sort of blindly watch films. I like pick a film and say, I'm going to watch this. I don't know where the director's from, what it's really about. I just like to go in cold. And I remember this film, I, I, as I was watching it, I, I kind of thought I knew where it was going. And then I realized that I didn't. And I love when that happens. I love when I can, you know, discover new voices or, or, or things I had not seen before. And I think everybody who's seen this film always likes to talk about it afterwards. And I think that's, that's, you know, recognition of a great film that you really want to have a conversation with it afterwards and discuss it and get everybody's take. Patrick, was this based on a true story? I'm curious about your inspiration. Not a true story. As a storyteller, so I, I also write short fiction um, as well. Um, one of the styles that I like is kind of the, I call it the double pass. So as you're watching it through the first time, you think you know what's going on. And then when you get to the, to the twist at the end, if you watch it again, in the new context, everything that was said now takes on a different meaning on your second pass through. So it's a, it's a particular style that I like to do. Um, I was inspired, actually I was watching a, a, a debate between um, a religious man and an atheist. And I, I kind of was uh, forming opinions about who was kind of winning the debate. You know, I won't go into what my opinion was, but I thought that would be a very interesting thing to, to put it, not only in this double pass type of, of story, but put in the, the context of the LGBTQ community. Now, you mentioned that you are also a writer. Yes. You were trained as an actor and you've had some major roles. What made you decide to move into the role of filmmaker? I always think of my, uh, the creativity inside of me kind of like a dog that has the zoomies. It's constantly going. So <laughs> as soon as I get done with a film or editing a film or whatever, I'm thinking about something else like I want to write a new script, I want to write a new book. I want to build a Lego model or just anything. It just constantly churns. And usually I'll, I'll shift focus. So after Reverend Falls, I did another short film. And then I went in uh, and started writing a book of 25 short stories um, that's about to be published. So I'll come back. Uh, probably the next thing I do will be a film. Um, it's, it's kind of tugging at me. It's, you know, um, I've been out of that one for a little bit, like a year and a half to two years. So now the filmmaking is coming back in and the writing, I'm like, eh, tired of that. You know, so it kind of, all these things tug at me and um, I just uh, humor the one that is the most powerful at that time. Okay. <laughs> Throughout the entire film, Reverend Gary doesn't state that he's coming out as a gay man. Why did you want this statement implied, but never spoken directly. I, uh, early on when I was uh, thinking of the story, I thought that someone coming out as atheist or coming out as, as anything would go through some difficulties um, with, with past family values and, and culture and, and society. And I thought that it very often gets um, addressed in the LGBTQ community, but not so much as perhaps someone struggling with their religion. So uh, I kind of in my head formed this backstory for him where he doesn't have a father figure. They talk about their mother. He goes to his brother and says, help me do this. But intentionally, like I said, with the two pass uh, version of it, I never say what the this is. 
So his brother's like, yeah, it's going to be hard, and you're going to struggle, but in the end, you'll be happy again. So I kind of um, piggybacked it on, on the struggle that coming out as a gay might, you know, someone might have, and put it in this different view of someone coming out as something else, in this case, you know, not religious. Speaking truth. Jim Farmer is the director of the Out On Film Festival here with filmmaker Patrick Shetta. His film, Reverend Falls, will air at the Out On Film Festival and on WABE Studios, Atlanta On Film Series. More information is available on our website, wabe.org. Thank you both, and thanks to all of you. Thank you. That interview was recorded in front of a live audience at the Plaza Theater this past Sunday. Coming up, we'll hear about the MLK Day concert, Trials to Triumph, to be performed Monday at First Presbyterian Church. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. In celebration of the King holiday, Andrew Brady, the former principal bassoonist of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra, will perform works by BIPOC composers First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta as part of the church's Concerts at First series. This free afternoon of music is co-presented by Challenge the Stats, an organization which empowers Georgia BIPOC artists to use music as a tool for social justice. Harpist Angelica Hairston is executive director of Challenge the Stats and explains why the nonprofit is important to Atlanta. I think being a classical musician myself, growing up in this city, there was always a space and a need to see a young professional black and brown musicians who are on stage in front really being role models for the next generation and also helping us envision a new world. The MLK Day concert, titled Trials to Triumph, is curated by bassoonist Andrew Brady, and Hairston is enthusiastic about Brady's talent and dedication. Andrew is someone who is truly passionate on stage and behind the scenes about racial justice, about equity, and about using his instrument in really new and innovative ways. I'm excited for people to hear this powerful music, this powerful program that he's put together, um, and a way for us to hear new music on an instrument that some of us have never heard in a solo capacity. Brady includes works by Jeffrey Scott, Stephen L. Smith, and H. Leslie Adams. Trouble Don't Last by Mark Lomax will complete the program. 
an incredibly powerful piece, very turbulent with gestures that kind of go in a battle between the bassoon and piano at times, also including a powerful cadenza where Brady can really just lay his heart out for all of the listeners. Trials to Triumph starts at 3 p.m. on the King holiday, Monday, and more information is available on the website Concerts at First. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tuesday at 11 a.m., we'll premiere our new series, The Art of Teaching, where we'll spotlight Georgia educators whose dedication and creative approach have a lasting impact on students often turning their passions into professions. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Light's senior producer is Kim Drobes. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. We'd love for you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hey, y'all. I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians, and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm -hmm. WABE. Sounds Like ATL is a music documentary series that takes an in-depth look at the artists amplifying Atlanta's famed music community. Built around a desire to highlight Atlanta's diverse and world-renowned music scene, each episode features unforgettable, intimate musical performances by fresh new musical guests, each with exclusive interviews about the stories behind their music. Listen to Sounds Like ATL Saturday evenings at 7 on WABE and WABE.org.